Charlie, uh, and I add my welcome to that of Abe. It's good to be with you tonight, and uh, welcome to those people who've come for the second time today. I probably wasn't clear enough this morning, but you're going to hear the same sermon again, <laughs> so you're going to have to sit through this. The whole night wasn't going to just be the conversation with Vicky and I, but anyway, I'll try to, um, hopefully you'll pick up something the second time around if, you've, if this is the second time today. Anyway, So as I've said, uh, the next today, uh, next week... And uh, the following Sunday, we're going to be thinking about how the gospel of Jesus changes us inside out. And we're going to be thinking uh, about what the scriptures have to say about our emotional life, the things that we feel. Uh, We're going to be thinking uh, over the next three weeks, or this Sunday and the next two Sundays, about what uh, the Bible has to say about our experience of joy, then anger, and then disgust we're going to be looking at to finish off with. Uh, But today, we're going to start with looking at the experience of joy. Uh, The Oxford Dictionary definition of joy is a feeling of great happiness uh, or a person or thing that causes you to feel very happy. But as we're going to see, uh, the Bible uses the word joy uh, to talk about something quite distinct from simply the experience of being very happy. You might remember uh, from Sunday school, is this going better? You might remember from Sunday school, the, uh, or if you're a child and grew up with the way to learn about how to find joy, J, I always get the spelling right, J-O-Y, I shouldn't know how to spell that fast enough, J-O-Y, joy, seeking Jesus first, then others, then yourself. That's not a bad thing to take away from tonight, if that's the only thing you take away, that's not bad. What we're going to be doing uh, for the next little while, we're going to drill down a little bit deeper and think about the phenomenon of joy from the scriptures and particularly as well as we see joy in the world today. Uh, Joy is an intriguing part of God's creation, even in a world which has uh, the scars of sin and broken relationships and all those kind of things and the suffering that we feel in the world. God has provided And continues to provide abundant sources of joy that are stitched and woven throughout his creation. So in Proverbs chapter 27, perfume and incense bring joy to the heart. There you go. So perfume and incense brings joy. Uh, One of the reasons uh, social media, uh, particularly Instagram and Facebook and places like that, can be difficult for people who might be experiencing uh, anxiety or depression... Uh, is often because Instagram and Facebook seems to be the place where people only log their great experiences, the amazing experiences of joy that they're having. Many people seem to only write something on Facebook either when they're having some amazing experience or amazing holiday or if in the case of some community groups when they're particularly angry about something. But it's interesting, isn't it, the experiences that we have uh, often uh, in life There are so many experiences of joy uh, that are in the everyday that we can often forget about them. We often have the question of why why does God allow suffering? And that's a very good question to ask. We often don't also ask the opposite question, why did God create joy? Why did God create joy? This phenomenon of joy that we all enjoy, how can joy exist without a God who made it? Well, there are many feelings, uh, sorry, there are not many feelings that uh, Christians are actually commanded to experience. 
So we're not actually commanded to be excited. We're not commanded to be passionate people. We're not commanded to be sad. We're not commanded to be fearful or anxious. But in the New Testament, we are commanded to be joyful. Uh, the Apostle Paul, in his letter to the Philippians, Philippians chapter 4 says, Rejoice in the Lord always. And just in case people thought, oh, he's just saying that's just a sort of offhanded comment, I will say it again, rejoice. He says it multiple times through the letter. What does the command mean to rejoice in the Lord always? Not sometimes. Does it mean that we have to walk into church every Sunday with a smile on our faces? We need to be happy, happy all the time. Does it mean that Christians can never be sad? We have to have these smiles 24-7. Does it mean, if you're familiar with the Simpsons, we have to be the Ned Flanders stereotype where nothing seems to ever bother him? He's always happy. What does it mean to rejoice in the Lord always? What we're going to do for the rest of our time in these passages tonight is we're going to look at Psalm 16 and a bit of uh, Philippians chapter 1 as a bit of a case study to see what it looks like to rejoice in the Lord always. And I've got five questions that will help us have, a, have I think, five mindset shifts to help us cultivate a life where we are rejoicing in the Lord always. So the first question is, where do good things come from? A very basic question in some ways. Rejoicing in the Lord involves the starting point, meditating on the goodness of God. Uh, Psalm 16 verse 2, that David the psalmist writes, You are my Lord, apart from you I have no good thing. Rejoicing in the Lord begins with tying every experience we have of joy and goodness to God. Uh, in the words of uh, Paul writes to Timothy in chapter 4, For everything God created is good. Nothing's to be rejected if it is, to be re if it is received with thanksgiving. Uh, James writes, Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly delights. The basic starting point for our experience of joy as Christians is to acknowledge God as the giver of joy. And that seems very basic and obvious, but... I think we can go days where we just take those good things for granted. We're not actually acknowledging the one who has given it to us. We're right to be thankful to God for this experience of joy. Well, the second question, which might sound a bit unrelated, but hopefully you'll see the connection as we go on. What happens when I run after other gods? Verse 4 of chapter 16. The sorrows of those will increase who run after other gods. So in David's case, when he wrote the psalm, he was referring to the looming judgment and uh, the punishment that would fall on the nations who explicitly and literally chased after other gods or idols, man-made idols. But if we believe that all good things come from God and apart from God there is no good thing, then for those who are making, making gods out of their careers out of their studies, out of their friendships, out of their relationships, out of their wealth, out of their desires, their holidays, their aspirations. For those of those, all those good things that are ultimately given by God, if you're making them God, they're going to be taken away, ultimately going to be taken away. None of them are created by God to carry the burden of the expectation that we place on them. Chasing after our career will ultimately never satisfy us. Chasing after our families, safety and prosperity 
will never actually cease to cause us worry and anxiety. Chasing after all these good things and making them our functional gods will only cause our sorrows to increase more and more. The third question, where do I seek my counsel? Where do I seek my counsel? Uh, You see again what David writes in verse 7, Psalm 16, I'll praise the Lord who counsels me. Even at night, my heart instructs me. I've set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad. My tongue rejoices. What is it causes him to be glad and to rejoice day by day? Praising the Lord who counsels him. It's setting the Lord before him at his right hand. You might have... um, they're not that popular anymore. There used to be these uh, wristbands, WWJD. Do you remember those? What would Jesus do? Remember those? Okay, yeah, good. Ironically, the most stolen item from Kurong Christian bookstores, apparently. What would Jesus do? Not steal the wristbands, right? <laughs> it, it, like some people would have them as a constant daily reminder of, of, you know, thinking about, you know, what it means to follow Jesus in all things of life. I, I never wore them, I, I, you know, much ever but i never wore them partly because i don't really think it's necessarily the most helpful thing because we're not actually called to do everything that jesus did you know when you know when you're faced in a terrible storm what would jesus do get up and calm the storm we can't do that right what are we called to do we're called to have god's word before us all the time Uh, you might be aware that there's a new group that is a new home group or Bible study group that started the Thursday morning breakfast and Bible. Is there anyone here from that? Oh, yeah, oh, good. There you go, Jason. Oh, good. Double, du- double dose, Steve. Put it back here again. We've got all the, yeah, and, uh, oh, God, excellent. We've got, we've got this 6.30 to 7.30 a.m. Does anyone know what that time slot is? 6.30 to 7.30 a.m. The earliest Bible study of St. Mark's. It starts today. Uh, some people, I think Phil's been up already for about two hours before that. Is that right? Yeah. <laughs> Uh, and what I love about it is we start the day, we, before the workday starts, before we go off and do all the things, we start together around the Word of God. And one of the little activities we have at the end of every uh, study, we have a little sort of business card, uh, that we, blank business card that we've got, where we write a verse down uh, that we uh, have been struck by in, in the study. And we, the idea is you take it around for the rest of the day awkwardly in your pocket or something like that. And it's cardboard, so it's not, you can't just crunch it up. The idea is you put it, it reminds you of what you've been learning is having God's word in front of you for the rest of the day. And I'm personally amazed how often uh, those verses come up uh, for the rest of the day and actually help speak into the situation, uh, particularly in the last week where I was feeling and many people in our community were feeling very fragile uh, with, uh, with pain and grief, uh, just having the Lord's armour, the armour of God, which we looked at last week was just a wonderful blessing Uh, the fourth question so we've got where do i seek my counsel the next question is is life really that short now one of the greatest fears and barriers to joy that many people experience as humans is this kind of fear of either uh, a dying or what happens when we die but probably more in this part of the world we're often driven more by the reality of the looming fact, the fact that our days seem numbered and we don't want to waste our life. We don't want to waste our life. And I think we're probably, most of us are 
are educated enough now to know that the, the pure indulgence in hedonism is a sure way to end your life quickly. So they're the stories of rock stars, uh, celebrities who have just indulged in all the pleasures of the world far too quickly. Uh, we know that's not the way uh, to, to live, but I think the middle-class 21st century Sydney approach to pleasure-seeking is a little bit more nuanced, a bit different to the rock star approach. I think the way that we like to do it is we don't want to waste any season of our life. So we know that life is short, so we need to make the most of our teenage years. We need to make the most of our university days. We need to make the most of before we're married. We've got to do all these things before we're married, otherwise we won't be able to do this. Or we need to make the most of time we have with our children, the young children. They're only young once. We've got to then, then we've got to... We've got to make the most of uh, when our kids leave home and we've got to travel the world, whatever it is, we try to make the most of every season so that when we get uh, to the end of our life, we've got this novel of all these different seasons. We've absolutely mined the best out of every season that life has to offer. And then we get to the end of our life and the novel actually never reads the way that we wish it would because we've been driven by this conscious or subconscious fear of the termination date that is set for us and we search for joyful experiences in the present because of the motto life short but you know what king david didn't live by the life's short motto his joy comes from a deep trust that in fact life is not short look at what he says my body also will rest secure because you will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. So how would your life be different if you genuinely believe that the promise of experiencing joy is not confined the days that you have before you die how would you imagine just imagine for a moment how liberated we would all feel how liberated you would feel if you believed that each day missing out on a particular experience of joy in the here and now is actually not missing out on any particular experience of joy if you believe that the grave is not the end. Eternity is secure. Eternity is a reality. If we genuinely believe this, and I mean genuinely believe that you will not abandon, we will not be abandoned to the grave, that we are actually filled with eternal pleasures, think of the decisions that we would make differently every day if we weren't basing our days on the conscious or subconscious assumption that life is short. But here's the really important distinction. Without Jesus, life is short. In the words of the Apostle Paul in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, if the dead are not raised, let's eat, let's drink, for tomorrow we die. Effectively saying... Look, if this whole resurrection stuff is a lie, a myth, well, let's just get on with enjoying life because we're going to die. Let's fill up our life with the joys that we, we can. 
we might as well make the most of every moment we have. And we know many people who live their life with that motto. Let's eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. But as Christians, death is not the end. Christ has not been abandoned to the grave, nor will he abandon anyone who trusts in him. So with Jesus, life is eternal. We're liberated from that desperate pursuit of, well, let's eat and drink for tomorrow we die. We should expect to see a difference between those who have followed Christ and those who don't in the way that we seek after and need to fill our lives with every single joy imaginable. Because the promise is we're not going to miss out on any joy if life is eternal. The fifth and final question How does knowing Jesus change my joy today? Now, I think this is the biggest mindset shift for us in the here and now. Rejoicing in the Lord always means having a Christ-centered perspective on life in the here and now. And it can only come when we really only, when we actually believe the truth in the significance of what Jesus has really achieved. Listen to those words from the Apostle Paul. He's written these in the first century in a first century prison cell, the least likely location you would expect to experience deep joy. But this is what Paul is experiencing. Verse uh, Chapter uh, 1 of Philippians, from verse 18, I'll continue to rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help given by the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage that now as always Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I'm to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labour for me. What, what should I choose? I do not know. <laughs> I'm torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. But it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and I'll continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith. So that through my being with you and again, you again, your joy in Christ Jesus will overflow on account of me. So you see the source of Paul's joy? It comes from knowing it's a win-win for him, whatever happens. To die, to die is to experience life with Christ, the joy that is eternal, where pain is removed forever, where the suffering, the tears, the bitterness, the frustration, the brokenness, they're all gone. But to live now in the here and now is to experience the joy of seeing others discover joy in Christ, to see them grow in that joy. And for Paul, this isn't an either-or in the sense of, it's not a question of him experiencing the joy of being with Christ when he dies, or experiencing, or other people experiencing joy in the here, here and now by him hanging around. No, for Paul, he experiences joy in the here and now as he sees more and more people sharing the same joy that he has. Now, remember I spoke earlier a bit, little bit about how Facebook and Instagram can be a place where all these good experiences are shared by people and create the illusion that everyone's lives are perfect and interesting, but our, you know, my life's not interesting. So Now, it can be true that, that that kind of exposure to that too much can be quite unhelpful, right? 
like Facebook's more like a boast book or something like that where you just sort of look how great my life is. But I want to defend people who share things just for a moment, right? That is, there's something natural and normal about the way we instinctively want to share with others the joy we're experiencing, not simply to boast about it. Uh, Most people share these things because I think joy is designed to be shared. It is enriched when it is shared. So if I go and see a magnificent, I remember coming down here when I first moved in and went to the, the Barnett's lookout down the road and I just went, wow, got to take Vic down here and have a look at this because I think these moments of joy are enriched when we share it with others. We naturally want others to have a sense of what we've experienced because it's kind of incomplete when it's not shared. But here's the thing, we know the experience, don't we, when people keep talking about the joys they've experienced in life, the end result for so many people is envy, frustration. Can you just be quiet? We know you're having a great time. Just stop talking about it, right? Why is that? Why do we experience it? Why is it when someone's having a great time and they're sharing these joys, we just want them to be quiet? It's because we're not experiencing satisfying joy ourselves. We're going, we're relying on our sources of joy on the seasonal fleeting experiences of happiness, but not joy. We're relying on the unstable moments of life to provide us joy, which is why Christian joy is so much richer. It's where Christians can say we can rejoice in the Lord. It's why it's so beautiful and so different to that common definition of joy we started with. Remember, we started with joy as a feeling of great happiness, a personal thing that causes you to be very happy. So doesn't do justice to the biblical definition of joy. The Christian experience of joy, its source is not the fleeting waves of life, what some might describe as good or bad fortune. The Christian experience of joy is on a deeper level of feeling or emotion than our day-to-day experiences of happiness. It goes so deep. It's a joy that can be shared without envy or insecurity. It's a joy that can be constant. So does that then mean that Christians should be people then that walk around with smiles on their faces all the time, like nothing can touch them, nothing can make them sad? It Actually, if that was the case, it'd be kind of creepy, wouldn't it? You know, a bit like failed plastic surgery where it's impossible not to smile, you know, (laughs) that kind of thing. Rejoicing in the Lord always does not be mean walking around with creepy Christian smiles like a bunch of cheerleaders that don't stop smiling, right? It's not what it is talking about. We actually can be sad and joyful at the same time. We're not called to be stoic monks. Now, it's interesting, when we think about... uh, it's interesting, when we think about this, before we move on to how we can be sad and joyful at the same time, as uh, it's important because, uh, you know, sometimes Anglicans uh, have got the reputation of being those kind of stoic monks and not expressing any joy. It is important to note that we should expect the joy that we have on our heart actually to make its way 
to the way we speak, the way we communicate, our demeanour. We should expect that, right? Uh, if someone was to come in outside our church community, we would hope they'd be able to see, if they spend a bit of time with us, that we do have a joy. We do have something that gives us glad hearts. But we're called to be people who actually can express our emotions. But it's interesting, rejoicing in the Lord always actually is something that can be experienced in the midst of sadness. Uh, Paul talks in 2 Corinthians about being sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. Poor, yet making many rich, having nothing, yet possessing everything. The Christian experience of joy, deep joy, deep hope, can exist parallel in the midst of deep sorrow. It's so amazing, which means it's okay to be sad and joyful at the same time. And the reason that is, and why Christians can, this is the paradox that flips everything on its head, right? The reasons Christians can be sad and joyful at the same time is because we know in Christ that it's actually the sadness that is the temporary and fleeting reality. No matter, you might be experiencing the sadness for your whole life, but in Christ, even if it's your whole life, you know when life is eternal, the sadness actually is fleeting and it will go away and the joy will remain. There's a great old hymn written by John Newton who wrote Amazing Grace. I'm going to invite the band up now who's going to lead us in this. This is a, it's a new tune, but it's a, 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 an old hymn called Glorious Things of You Are Spoken. And it's got this line, which I love, the last line of the, the hymn, solid joys and lasting treasures, none but Zion's children know. And, and Zion is the way that the Bible talk about God's people. Solid joys, lasting treasures. That's what God's people know. That's why we can rejoice in the Lord always again i'll say rejoice so you might want to join in as you feel comfortable but uh the band will lead us so let's stand and sing something um the conversation uh so i don't know how this is i'm going to hand over actually to charlie and naomi um who will take it from here Hello. Hello. Hi, Luke and Vicky. Hi, everybody. 
was I'll answer too many questions. <laughs> All right. Um, so yeah, welcome to our discussion. Uh, so Naomi and I have been married for about two and a bit years. How how long have you guys been married for? The first question. <laughs> Twenty. <laughs> you paused. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Thank you. So, um, yeah, Luke asked if we'd like to put together, Naomi and I would like to put together some questions to think through marriage, particularly in light of our study in Ephesians 5 um, a few weeks ago, um, to really think about, yeah, what that means practically and as a less experienced married couple asking a more experienced married couple about that and hopefully helping everybody as well. <laughs> Yeah, so, um, and we also talked before about um, recognising that every marriage is different, um, but yeah, I'm sure there's so much to learn um, from you guys and just about um, some principles and, and thoughts um, that you guys have about these particular passages. Um, so these passages can be quite confronting to our modern ears sometimes and um, sometimes they can be avoided or, um, yeah, they can be tricky to understand. Why do you guys think that is? Uh, well, I think there's partly, um, partly because of sin uh, that we find it hard. That we we are in different times and different cultures that we we can uh, find ourselves resisting God's word to us, and so that's uh, the Bible teaches us that. Uh, there are also, uh, as a society, we have moved uh, in in a direction which, in many ways, there's a lot of positives in the in where areas of our society has moved uh, but one of the things is we've we've uh, eradicated any kind of understanding of God being a creator and God having a purpose around his creation uh, as a secular society and so I think a little bit like I think Craig was talking about a few weeks ago uh, there's a water that we swim in uh, where we are just we find ourselves almost trying to resist certain things as these must not be true or this mustn't be saying what it's saying. Um, and I think that can be why we can find it difficult, particularly uh, particularly differences between men and women, I think is something that um, as a society we have fought quite hard to eradicate any real differences there. Yeah, uh, yeah I would agree. I think um, just distinction and difference in and of itself has become potentially a negative thing. Um, and and I think just also the word submission, even just the word, the prefix sub and under, you know, it carries all kind of connotations and um, these passages have been misused as well. So there's all kinds of reasons, I think, where we struggle with the terminology and distinction that the Bible teaches. Yeah, thank you. So I guess well, diving in, thinking about husbands and what Paul tells us to do. So um, in Ephesians 5, 25, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Um, what do you think this looks like? And particularly in light of this idea of headship that comes up as well. Um, yeah, what does that look like and what can it look like in marriages? Uh, I think the call uh, is uh, quite a radical call, like we sort of said a few weeks ago when we looked at this passage, that the, the household codes in the ancient world never instructed husbands to love their wives. Uh, and so there is a, a counterculture dimension there in the writings that we don't often pick up 
um, today because we just assume marriages are all about love. Um, uh, in terms of uh, what it looks like, um, is incredibly, it's an incredibly radical thing. It's, it's really the way that Christ loved the church is that he laid his life down for church, which means that's a pretty, a pretty radical kind of love. Uh, with regards to the question of headship, uh, I think was your second component. Uh, headship, I think, again, is a word that, again, we can read into that word what we might, how we might use it. So headship we might hear of in the, in the context of maybe like a CEO kind of role or something like that. Uh, the word head in the New Testament... Uh, when the kind of the scholars debate a little bit around the 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 connotations that it's meant to carry, so some argue is it talking about the source or is it authority kind of language, and I think I think the consensus seems to be it's sort of somewhere in the middle of that idea of of source and authority, but by that meaning that it's not um, it's the head I think carries the idea of holding things together which is slightly different to just authority. It's holding things together. It carries with it a sense of responsibility. Um, and so I think that love carries with it. The husband is called to love their wife um, by uh, taking a particular level of responsibility that is manifests itself in self-sacrificial love. I think uh, the tricky thing is that we often... Can try to we can we can try to work out what that looks like on the ground, and we can say things that the scriptures aren't saying, uh, which might be good for certain marriages and might be wise, but there's a reason I think the scriptures hold back and give us a pattern to follow rather than very specific commands. And I mentioned on um, when I spoke on this that, for example, it doesn't say so. Therefore, husbands make the final decisions or have a final power of veto or all those kind of things. The scripture doesn't go there, and it could easily have gone there, but I think it gives us a pattern for us to actually go with the grain, if that's the right way, of the way that God has made us, acknowledging that that men and women are different, but every male and female are also different, so every marriage is very different, and per- people's personalities are different. And so... Uh, so what, what it looks like for the husband to lay their life down for their wife um, in the day-to-day things will actually look different in different contexts. Uh, and so I think it was interesting when we talk about, I was chatting to these guys before earlier about how much we share about our marriage. <laughs> um, not that we don't really want to share deeply about it, but we prefer to do that in a in a one-to-one context because partly the point is not actually look at what one marriage, how one couple work everything out because every couple's different and every couple have different personalities and different things that they bring to the marriage. So I think we'd much prefer to talk about the big principles and how we wrestle with those principles uh, on the day-to-day things. You want to add anything to that? I think I've moved beyond your question, sorry. <laughs> I'm sure um, question everyone's sort of um, wondering and definitely a question that I pondered a lot um, when we were considering getting married and after we got married and still think about what does submission mean 
Um, and yeah, how have you worked worked it out? And yeah, what does it mean for you? Oh, I wouldn't say I've worked it out <laughs> perfectly in any way. Um, I think if we come back to, I guess, as Luke said, that as an idea of a pattern, thinking about um, submission as putting yourself under that loving responsibility of your husband, it's not like on a day-to-day level I'm thinking about submission, like it's probably not something that pops up into my brain very much, but I guess it's developing patterns where I can allow Luke to take that responsibility for our family even though in a practical sense, in a lot of ways, it's just a normal partnership in terms of the decisions we make and how we think about day-to-day things and divvying up jobs and all that sort of thing. Um, It's sort of a bigger concept. I mean, I can think of one example. um, This is a bit random, but um, when we were um, travelling overseas earlier in the year, um, Luke had sort of suggested it would be good if every night we could... um, pray for something from the day and read a bible passage and I was a little bit like oh that's exhausting you know (laughs) I'm tired you know I want to go to bed um but I I guess you know acknowledging he's actually trying to take a responsibility for our family you know not being able to go to church easily overseas to have some Christian input I want to honor and respect that and allow that to happen even though there was a part of me that was just wanting to go oh can we just go to bed (laughs) you know so I mean that's just a bit of a you know it's as as Luke said it's really hard to give specific examples it will be this it won't be this because I I think as uh, as Luke said before the Bible doesn't get really specific and I think there's a good reason for that because it will actually look different um but as principle and thinking through do I want to put myself under the loving leadership of my husband? I do want that. I think that's good for our family. Um, and I think it means not being super-duper independent whilst recognising that, you you know, you don't change as you get married. You're still you and you have your own skills and abilities and passions. Um, but you're not independent. You are a marriage. You are a couple. Um and that's actually a really good thing and that's a gift that God gives us that we're not independent from one another whilst we're still our own people, if that makes sense. Um, I remember earlier in the year when you gave the um, talk on Genesis, um, we talked about um, men and women and we had a discussion afterwards and one thing I found really helpful, which um, I thought I'd share, is that I think I brought up this passage and about submission and um, one of the things you said was um, that in our culture it can be quite common for women to talk down about their husbands and um, to talk like, oh, you know, they're an extra child to look after or, they, you know, they're hopeless or whatever and just be like, have that sort of, you know, um, tearing down language and it is really common um, in our culture and I remember you saying that's, that's clearly not um, being respectful and I thought, yeah, that's so true um, and that language of building up is so important and I remember that was yeah helpful advice that you shared yeah yeah you do notice it I think we were talking a bit earlier that we you really notice it when a couple and this is not so much talking about the differences between husbands and wives but just generally as a partnership you really notice it and I notice it in this church when you see couples that only have ever said something positive they've only had a positive word to say about their wife or their husband and it actually really it's just such an encouragement 
when you see a couple that just talk positively about each other. I'm not going to embarrass the people who do it, but there are people who I, I actually see just that constantly are talking positively about each other, and I think it's a wonderful thing, and it's actually really, really builds builds not each other up, but also it's it's an encouragement for a community. I think it's really cool. I think something that's really stood out for me thinking about this larger concept of headship and submission. Uh, it stood out to me in particular in, in going through the passage that headship is mentioned in light of submission. They're not separate. Yeah. And talking now as well, seeing that it really is, um, they really work together. It's not that um, one person could do one and like both husband and wife are part of that pattern that we yeah. see as well. Yeah, yeah and I think um, that that's quite a helpful, it, it, is, it is a, there's a reason why like the children and parents, so children obeying parents whose fathers are not provoking them to, to anger but bringing them up in the instruction of the Lord, that combination is just the bedrock of society. So children obeying parents who are wanting to not exacerbate the kids. I think that's just a wonderful, I mean, we just want families like that, right? Um, but that's, but, but it doesn't, re children obeying abusive parents or, 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 or that kind of thing doesn't actually work that way. But now, what that looks like on the ground is where it gets a little tricky, right? So in a marriage, um, we know we're both sinful and we're not perfect and um, neither one of us are Christ, <laughs> gladly. <laughs> um, but but there, is a s there is a line in which we don't, we don't say, I'm only, I'm only going to love Vicky while she's lovable and, and, and <laughs> Vicky's not only going to submit um, to a loving care whilst you know I'm, I've got everything perfect but there is a sense in which um, if you take the submission example uh, if, if one party is actually not um, is actually not loving and actually acting in a way that is against the way that God has called us to act um, it is not honourable to God to submit to sinful behaviour. That that's actually not loving the husband. So if a, if a wife is submitting to an unloving husband, that's actually unloving to the husband to do that, right? Uh, it's not loving to the husband, and it's not loving to God to submit to uh, that kind of behaviour. Now that doesn't mean you you're sitting there keeping score of wrongs or anything like that's not really. But there is a there is a line in which we have to realise that God is not calling us to sin or to promote sin in our relationships. And so that is why I think particularly with submission, putting yourself under, why it's not that obedience kind of language, there's a sense in which you're meant to be appreciating it in the context of the whole and the, the design of the, without necessarily saying, well, you're not pulling your part and I don't know, you know, do you know what I mean? Is that yeah, so I guess you've got... Um, you know, more extreme examples of the situations of abuse and that sort of thing where you'd want to put that in a different category. I think in the normal day-to-day, -day, recognising that for both of you to have exhibit grace and, you know, forgiveness and the power of saying sorry in a relationship, and that's Christians can do that because we know how much we've been forgiven in Jesus, that actually being able to say sorry and have that humility uh, can bring that together. But, yeah... It Whilst there's those kind of more um, extreme, although not un not sadly all too uncommon situations where there's an actual abusive relationship, whereas Luke said you wouldn't want to think, well, but I'm a submissive wife, so 
I need to just sit in that abuse and therefore enable that to continue destructive patterns, not only for you but also potentially for children. Um, in the normal pattern of relating, you are going to recognise that, yes, there is sin and you want to exhibit grace and forgiveness and continue to try to emulate that pattern um, and, and as Luke said before, recognise that while your husband, if you're a wife or wanting to be a wife, is called to lay down his life for you, that he's not actually Jesus and he's not going to be able to do that as um, Jesus would. Not that, you know, I know I don't want to bring in that WWJD thing again, but um, <laughs> yeah. And I think the other thing, this is a little bit random, but bringing in um, Barbie, um, you know, I don't know how many people have seen that movie, but there's a big sort of feminist speech in there and it's sort of all of these different things about, you know, I, I've got to be the perfect wife and mother, I've got to be thin but not too thin and I've got to be this, I've got to be that. I think that kind of shows this is this worldly pattern that, you know, both ma men and women can get caught up into and like how liberating is it to be a Christian and go, well, actually, you don't need to be any of those things. I can just be in this relationship and you know, love my husband, sit under his love and all those other things actually are the pressure of the world that we actually don't need to um, kind of buy that lie, I guess, that we have to have this perfection in every, or even that our marriage is going to be perfect because of course it's not, you know. And as Luke said a couple of weeks ago, it's precious but it's not ultimate and that's actually quite freeing. Sorry, that was a random aside. No, it's really remembering. Barbie is never random. <laughs> <laughs> I think really stands out remembering this marriage and this teaching is in the context of where uh, part of God's family and we're seeking to seek after him and to love him and to live like Jesus. So as individuals, we still have our faith and this doesn't, yeah, this is part of that as well. It's not to replace that. Um, I guess to just ask as well, we know we talked about we're not perfect, things can be difficult. Um, what are some ways that you can that sort of help you or encourage you to be fulfilling these roles in your marriage? <laughs> okay. We both need some tea time. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I think, uh, I think the... So I do think it, it looks different for a Christian couple and, and a couple where where both both uh, it, both uh, husband and wife are followers of Jesus, although there there is some of these verses do apply into a, a couple where one one part is um, not a Christian, but speaking in, in our context, uh, I think the fact that uh, that we both love Jesus more than each other is really helpful <laughs> and I think uh, that actually helps us to love each other in a way that we haven't put we don't put each other up on a pedestal and but in God's kindness and the paradox I guess of this he shows more and more things about of why I love Vic and I don't know if that works this way to you, <laughs> but uh, I think that I think that that putting Jesus at the centre and that that is um, finding my security in Him actually does on a daily basis help um, the the imperfections of our marriage. Um, 
a lot of the a lot of the common advice, which is just great, where the idea of you know not letting the sun go down while you're still angry and all those things are really really helpful in marriage when you you know when you're literally sleeping next to each other you can actually make sure you don't go to bed while there's animosity you don't always get it perfect but it, that even those kind of pieces of wisdom really does allow you to start the next day with a blank slate and not just a not just a piece of psychological advice because when you start with a blank slate you're not just doing that like as a mental exercise you're doing it in imitation of the, f the, the saviour who has actually given us a blank slate, um, a profoundly deep blank slate. So we can do that going, this is just a very small shadow of, of what Christ has done for us, giving us a massive blank slate. So we can do that each day. So, yeah, I think that's kind of the way for me. Yeah, I was actually going to say something very similar, which I just think is so important to foster your own relationship with God. And it's great to pray together and read the Bible together, but I think it's really um, important to also on your own continue that prayer. And because with God, he is perfect. He is faithful. He is. He knows you intimately inside and out. He knows parts of you. Your husband probably doesn't even really know things, you know, that you feel shame about, all kinds of things. And when you pour that out to God in prayer and when you continue to learn from him, individually as well as together in your marriage again i just think it frees you into putting the marriage partner as having this expectation that he has to meet and fulfill every need which as ev we've just thought about tonight creates really an idol out of that partner which they cannot fulfill and neither can you fulfill that for them but god can fulfill that and if we are being filled by god it enables us to give more into that marriage and not expect that it's going to yeah satisfy all of your life that you're looking for yeah that's so helpful um so we're talking about marriage but um there's a lot of people in the room who might be dating or engaged um and does this passage have any implications um for people in those situations it's a really good question because it's i want to say yes and no um, first of all, no, because the category you're in when you're dating and you're engaged is you're single, so you're unmarried. The Bible has two categories, so you're married or unmarried. Right? And so it's quite uh, important to, to make those distinctions. So when you commit to each other in marriage, you're making a commitment and then you begin behaving as the Bible, Bible calls husbands and wives to to behave in that marriage relationship. So this is not just a men and women relationship thing. So that's an important distinction to make. That submission and headship thing is not men and women. It's a, it's a marriage relationship. So no in that sense, uh, and you, you wouldn't want to see um, Christian dating relationships creating relationships of headship and submission in that kind of marriage context because you haven't actually made that commitment to each other and you don't have that security in the marriage relationship because you haven't made that commitment. So it's very important that you don't actually go down that way in a, in a dating or even an engaged sense because I think that can lead into all kinds of um, things where you're getting the order of things the wrong way around, right? But all that said, uh, because the submission and headship dynamic, the partnership that we see in Ephesians 5, is not something that we should apologise for. It's actually a good thing 
it's a wonderful thing that actually fosters uh, wonderful, healthy family households if we understand it the way the Bible does, then uh, when we are dating or, or engage or even seek thinking of who you might want to uh, get, uh, get married or go out with or whatever it is, you do want you, you want to have that in mind, right? You want to actually not a, you want to actually think about okay, um, uh, what would it look like to lay my life down for this person? What would it look like to sit under this person's uh, loving care? So you don't want to just say, "Well, I'll just deal with that when I get married." That's that's very unwise. But nor do you want to start to bring in the biblical instructions into the marriage before you've actually committed to each other, because you're single, you're unmarried until you're married, right? The other categories are kind of more social categories that we'll talk about. Uh, so I think it's a, yeah, thinking about those people who might be engaged or newly married couples and you know, two years is, yeah, we're newly married still. Can we say that for a while? I feel <laughs> like I'm newly married. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Young at heart, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, have you got any sort of take-home advice? I don't know, is there anything that you can sort of sum up with things to be thinking about um, for that. Like advice, if, you know, advice, if you could reach back in time to your oh <laughs> younger <yeah>. married self <laughs> or to people in the room, what, what advice would you give? Actually hard to think back that long ago, to be <laughs> honest. <laughs> I, do think it's, I do think it's very normal for the first year and few years of marriage to have... Um, you know, difficulties because it is a big change, especially if um, you maybe haven't lived out of home or you've got a really close relationship with your parents. And I definitely remember feeling kind of sad, weirdly, when I was first married because I missed my parents and missed living with them and chatting to them in the same way that I did before. So I think it is um, an adjustment. And I, I just think just not putting too high expectations on how everything should feel and be and even if you're thinking about headship and submission and not being overly, oh, are we getting that right? You know, just being able to relax a little bit into um, the reality of that relationship and recognising that, you know, God does grow you over time. Um, you want to use the experiences and the ups and downs that you go through together to hopefully draw you closer and rather than the opposite. Um, but, yeah, all marriages have ups and downs at different points for different reasons and there can be mental health issues and sickness and all kinds of things, financial pressure that put pressure on relationships. So I think, yeah, setting up good patterns in terms of your, your thinking and your relating um, early but not worrying as well and needing to have a conversation about every single thing that potentially could be not exactly as you want. I don't know if I answered that. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, I think... Um yeah, acknowledging that the for many people, it, the I think as Vic was saying, the the family that you are, are leaving, so that uh, your parents, and then moving into a um, creating a new family unit, even with or without kids, before you had kids, the, the when you moved away from that, that's not a small thing, uh, and it doesn't just that that transition doesn't just you don't just adjust at the when the wedding ceremonies happen. So particularly depending on the person you've been asking for advice for, the person you've been ha usually having conversations around the dinner table, whatever it is, that that kind of idea just, th 
that can actually be something that you just I, I think for new newly married couples just to be patient with each other as as th that will look differently different for one you know some people are much much closer that with their family as Richard's saying and other people are, are more used to being independent so all that thing is just patience and I think the longer you spend together putting Jesus at the center of your marriage the closer uh, that you'll come to actually see eye to eye because you've had Jesus at the center and you might not you won't be exactly the same or anything but you'll actually I think the longer that you, you I think just having patience in that um yeah, I think I think that I think um, and I think the 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 instructions to husbands and wives are are important, but I do think the I think the picture in Ephesians uh, chapter five and the other passages is just to stand back and say, now this is actually about having your marriage united in putting Christ at the centre. So not focusing on your individual roles. And you've actually got to say, how do we as a couple honour and, and reflect the love of Christ in our marriage, right? And go with the grain of the way that God has made men and women, not against it. And I think that's, that's really important. Um, I don't want to say don't focus too much on the, <laughs> the Bible passages. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying... Don't don't miss the forest, you know, from the trees. I think the I think the idea is try to see that this the picture that Paul keeps saying is that this is a shadow of Christ's relationship with the church. So put Christ's relationship with the church at the centre and bring your whole self to the marriage um, to honour Jesus. Is that yeah? Yeah. Right. And then just get get on and, and do the work, like in the garden. You know, they just get on and do the work because it's a it's you know marriage is a natural thing that God has made and. Um, it's the same with with parenting. Like, yes, it's good to, you know, think about um, being a parent and what that looks like. But I also think it's a very natural thing, and it's it's been happening for millennia. And yeah, you just kind of think about it, consider it, pray about it, but also just get on with life as as God has made us to do. I think, and get on with serving Him, being part of Christian community. Um, you know, which obviously has married and unmarried parents and non-parents, and we're all we're all kind of getting on with it together. Really, sad. I was just so encouraged when that as Paul's teaching us about marriage. It's, it's almost he can't contain himself, and he, he wants to talk about Christ in the church yeah, and yeah, teach yeah. us about Jesus as well. And it's just yeah, seeing that bi that bigger context of marriage is important and it's good, um, but it's also a reflection of Christ in the church in this bigger picture of living for God. Yeah. Do you think we're are we running out of time? Excuse me. <laughs> is that? I don't know, I can't even see what time it is now. There we go. Yeah, so uh, shall I pray quickly to close? Yeah. Heavenly Father, thank you for um, yeah, this teaching on marriage in Ephesians. Thank you for uh, all that we can learn from it and um, how it's helpful uh, for us who are married and are married to, to understand what this picture looks like and how to live um, yeah, in, this, in this wider picture as men and women um, in this particular relationship of marriage. Um, I just pray that you'll be with... Um, all of us who are married or thinking about marriage to be um, yeah, taking the word seriously and thinking about um, what this might look like for us um, and also remembering that Jesus is at the center of this and that we're living, uh, this is part of life for him. Amen.